0: Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house, or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This last Club Book podcast of the 2014 winter-spring season features Amanda Copeland at her April 24th visit to Stillwater Public Library. Amanda Copeland's majestic debut novel, The Orchardist, was a New York Times bestseller and has garnered wide critical praise since its release in 2012. Called A Stunning Accomplishment by NPR, The story follows a solitary orchardist who provides shelter to two runaway teenage girls in the late 19th century Pacific Northwest. Copeland, who grew up on her grandparents' orchards in Washington, received her MFA from the University of Minnesota and was a recipient of residencies from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts and the Omni International Arts Center at Liedig House in Ghent, New York. She currently lives in Portland, Oregon.
1: Thank you all for coming out tonight. I flew in um, to Minneapolis early this morning, it felt like. Um, And it was cold. I don't know why I'm surprised I've lived here (laughs) and rainy. It was actually, I felt like I had um, left Portland, sort of flew around, hovered around Portland and landed. It was sort of the same um, climate as when I left. and it feels really good to, um, to be back here. I am seeing you all today, and we're going to go party in a little while. And then I'm seeing a lot of my friends um, before I go back to the West Coast. So I'm really excited to be here. What I thought I would do, um, I don't assume all of you have read my book. Um, but I, So I'm going to um, sort of talk about the book, read um, a few sections out of it. Um, talk about its genesis. Talk about my time here um, in Minnesota, and then leave plenty of. Um, there's so many of you. <laughs> I want to leave some time for um, Q and A. That's often I find uh, people's favorite parts of the reading. Um, and I know that there are some book clubs here too. So I'm sure you guys have some some questions that you've um, been working on for some time, which is always interesting and exciting. Um, I guess I wanna begin by talking about um, my relationship um, to the Twin Cities. I came here because I wanted to work with the writer Charles Baxter. Um, I'm not sure, I see some of you nodding your head. Um, If you know of his work, if you know him, I hope you love him as much as I do. I don't know how you could not, he's such a wonderful person wonderful teacher. If you don't know who that is, um, you should check out, you know, one of his novels. He's written um, a lot of short story collections. Um, but I first um, read him, um, I read his essays. He has um, a few collections of craft essays, the first one of which a collection I read called um, Burning Down the House. And I was a student at the University of Oregon. I went down to school down in Eugene. I was an English major, and I was one of those students who I mean I was just a huge, unabashed nerd. <laughs> you know I was just reading all the time. I would go to English classes, lectures that I wasn't registered for. I would just sit and I would try to soak up as much um, as much as I could while I was there, and I also took a lot of creative writing classes um, to the chagrin of my of my parents. <laughs> they said, well, you know, wanting to be a writer is, is great, but why don't you take, and my dad is a businessman, and he said, why don't you take like an economics class just for fun, you know, just, I think he was, he was hoping that, you know, if um, my dreams didn't materialize as I hoped they would, I would have some sort of business-like skill to fall back on, but I ignored that advice, um, and I took, as many creative writing classes as they would allow me to take. I took some classes more than once, which I don't even know how that works technically. Um, I think if you're paying them, (laughs) they don't care. The university's like, fine. You want to take Fiction 101 again with the same teacher? That's fine if you write us a check. And so that's, that's what I did. That was my university career. I went to as many readings as I could. And there was a special program at the University of Oregon called the Kid K-I-D-D, tutorial program. And it was for juniors and seniors who wanted to have sort of a, an intense um, writing education. And it was, I think they had maybe 50 or 60 students. You applied to get into this program. And then you met with your little um, group of maybe four students. And, and then you would attend like all 60 of these little groups. Um, would attend sort of lectures and had visiting writers who came just for kid tutorial students. So of course I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a kid student when I was a freshman and they wouldn't let me in. They thought I was a freak, which I was, and I understand why someone you know, who was bothering you all the time to get in would, would annoy you. Um, but they finally let me in and they had a writing contest every year. and. Um, One year, Charles Baxter was the judge, and I had never heard of him before. And so I started reading all that I could. I read a lot of short stories. Um, And then I read this new book that had come out called Burning Down the House. And these essays were very sophisticated, very approachable and relatable, but also very sophisticated uh, meditations on the craft of fiction writing. And many of them just went straight over my head. And but I, but I could sense that he knew what he was talking about and that I would understand one day, if I tried very hard, I would understand what he was talking about. And um, so I thought, I'm going to write a story, and Charles Baxter's going to pick my story, and I'm going to meet him, and he's going to tell me what to do with my life. <laughs> Basically, that's what I wanted. And um, so I wrote a story and I turned it in and I ended up winning this competition and part of the prize was that I got to go out um, for ice cream cones, I don't know who picked that, with Charles Baxter. (laughs) And so here comes Charles Baxter, I go to his reading, you know, I just am seeing him, I think he's the the best thing ever. Um, The next day we meet at this ice cream parlor, Prince Puckler's ice cream parlor in Eugene and had the, the most awkward ice cream cone <laughs> ever <laughs> because I I was, I didn't know what to say to him and he was tired probably and um, didn't know, didn't understand me, <laughs> didn't understand why I was so nervous. So we had this ice cream cone and at the very end, I, I don't think we said two words the whole time and at the end I said, um, as one would say to someone you have a crush on or something, I said, I, I I wanna come study with you, I think you're, I think you're brilliant. He was just like, um, okay. Um, he said, well, you know, at that time he was teaching at Michigan. And he said, well, you know, I'm leaving Michigan. No one, this hasn't been advertised, but I'm going to Minnesota. And um, so you should apply there. And I said, okay. And so I applied um, for when I was ready. I think that was when I was a junior. When I had graduated, I applied um, to come here to the University of uh, Minnesota for the creative writing program, and I got in. And so I came here, and Charles Baxter is one of those people who, in the writing community, he's, he's a, whatever the male equivalent of a diva is. <laughs> he's a diva. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody wants to study with him. So that meant that um, I didn't get to study with him until my third year of being a graduate student because his classes filled up. There were people who wouldn't speak to other people because they got in and they didn't get in. It was. The usual MFA sort of drama is very exciting. And um, so I was walking down the hallway one day when I, was, um, when I first got here, and here comes Charles Baxter coming down the hallway. And I said, Charlie, it's me. And he had, <laughs> he, had he had no idea who I was. And he said, oh. And I said, I came, I came. You said I should apply here. And he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, years later after we had um, he got to know me, and we we uh, renewed our friendship. You know, now we're we're quite close, and he's a very important mentor. But just last year, um, I was at the um, Bradlow Writers Conference, which is this really awesome conference they have in Vermont every year. And he was there. I was there as a fellow, and we were having you know wine with this beautiful view. And and I said, Do you remember going and having an ice cream cone with me when I was like? you know, 19, and he said, I had no idea who you were that day, and I didn't want to hurt your feelings. He I, says, I just can't remember. And I said, well, that's fine now, because we have a relationship. But it was so funny how it was so important to me, and yet um, he just didn't, didn't remember. But um, he's a wonderful man, a wonderful teacher. One of the best experiences of my writing life has been um, learning from him. And if, there, if there's anybody here who's thinking about getting an MFA, um, you know, I would definitely check out the program they have here. It's a wonderful, wonderful program with other wonderful faculty as well. Um, So that was sort of um, how I was in college. Um, The book came from, I would say, my experience just just from being born in Wenatchee, Washington. I was born in the area where I write about. certainly a different time period since this is, I write about around the year 1900. I was um, born there in the 80s and um, it was this, you know, agricultural boom town and had been for, you know, almost a decade. Um, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house, which was um, just outside of Wenatchee in a little community called called Monitor. Um, It's so funny, when I, when I go out of the Northwest, it's so hard to describe what that particular landscape is like. Maybe you've traveled there. Um, It's funny, when I go, when I'm in the Northwest, though, the Pacific Northwest, um, I can say, you know, my grandparents lived in Monitor, and everyone's like, oh, oh, Monitor. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I just have this, like, you can sort of do a shorthand, because people understand what you're talking about. Um, But if you have the book, or if you've seen a cover of the book, um, that cover image is actually taken from a photo archive of um, f- photographs in Monitor. So this is actually, it looks just like where my grandparents live. Um, and actually, when, I was, when the book first came out, I was giving reading in Wenatchee. And afterwards, um, when I was signing books, this woman came up to me and, and said, I know where this photograph is taken. When I was a little girl, I would walk to school every day and there's a certain point on my walk where I could stop and turn and look out over the valley and this, it was the cover of your book. And so she told me where to go and look for it and it was very, um, it, was, it was really special. Um, of course, they've, they've digitally enhanced um, the cover to bring out certain elements, but um, it's really special to me that this, that people from that area, uh, it feels very authentic to them. So, the book really came out of my experience with that particular landscape and wondering what that landscape was like um, before it was a landscape that I knew growing up. You know, I fell in love with the really manicured orchards. And it took me, like, this is embarrassing to admit, but it took me, you know, well, you know, I was an adult before I realized that's not natural (laughs) that's sort of like this very deeply cultivated place and it was very interesting to me to think that you know i'm really averse to change just it's like part of my personality and i think i'm a person who fell in love with um, a landscape that had been very manipulated and changed from what it was before and so i really started thinking about um, when i started this book what was the landscape that i fell in love with growing up what did that look like before um, sort of the, the wave of settlers and homesteaders came and changed it in order to um, mass produce all the all the fruit um, that it's known for today. And so that led to doing research, which for me, um, people often ask about my researching technique, and I have to laugh inside because my technique is that I just go, I, I just get obsessed about certain things. You know, I get obsessed about certain towns or about, certain writing techniques or certain um, ways that the early homesteaders um, sort of jerry-rigged certain things to irrigate their their small orchards. You know, I would sort of find something and, and follow it to its root and then, you know, read the sources for particular articles and then I would be off on that. So I would just sort of inundate myself with interesting things and sometimes I would try to, I would find a really interesting detail, and I would try to fit it into the manuscript um, because I thought it was cool. And then it would stick out like a sore thumb like six months later, so I'd have to cut it. Um, and so for me, I really tried to make sure that I was always really excited about what I was researching because I felt like if it's, you know, sometimes, sometimes things are going to feel like a chore, of course, when you're working on a project like a novel, of course. But if you're not most of the time, Insanely excited to be doing what you're doing. I mean, that excitement is what's going to carry you through. You know, this took me eight years to write, almost nine. And if I didn't have that sense of excitement, um, this never would have <laughs> would have happened. Um, and so I just had fun with all my research. My grandparents um, are my grandmother, especially, and my mother are huge Pacific Northwest history buffs. And so my grandmother has this huge library of. Of books about the Pacific Northwest, novels set in the Pacific Northwest, things, pamphlets she's sort of gotten from roadside, like little museums and things like that, that don't have, you know, you'd have to double-check those sources because some of them were, you know, a little dubious, but that was exciting too. Um, and so I really come from a line of people who are um, really interested in the culture and the landscape of that particular place. And so it was fun to talk to my grandmother especially about um, you know, certain little towns or uh, if she remembered certain train routes where it heard if you could get from Kashmir to Seattle you know, in one day or did you have to switch, you know, she would sort of think about it and ask or con- consult her library. And um, so it was really fun to sort of collaborate with her on, on those things. Um, I really feel like the book was, like I was able to imagine certain scenes because of the sort of fun research that I did. If there were, if there was a, a certain detail that I didn't know, I would sort of make something up just to fill in the space I needed to, like in a paragraph or something. Uh, and then I would go back and I would research it. But it, it was something where if, what I was writing didn't come from some sort of intuitive place, then it didn't ring true on the page for me. And then it would fall flat and I would have to cut it. So um, I know a lot of people who do that sort of the opposite way. They'll like, do a lot of research and then make sure that they sort of weave in what they learn and th- throughout their work. And that can, be very, that can come off as being very authentic and work for them, but I had a really hard time doing that myself. Um, I think, too, there was sort of this intellectual aspect of thinking about the landscape at a particular time that drove the writing of the book, but also, um, this is really hard to talk about, too, because it's so um, mysterious, I guess, (laughs) is that I felt like when I was spending so much time in the orchards, um, I was very close with my grandparents, there was a lot of stuff going on in, in my immediate family but also in the extend, extended family that when you're a child you don't understand what's wrong or why there's this sort of presence of this, there's this weight of some sort of emotion like fear or, um, I don't want to say unhappiness because that's kind of a, a strange word to use, but there's there's some sort of emotion um, kind of heavy, haunting your family, and you don't know why, but you, as a child, especially for certain children, they're like sponges, and they just absorb all of that. So I felt like I absorbed um, sort of the emotional atmosphere of, of what was going on, you know, in my family immediately and, and in a larger way. And I was also deeply impressed by the trees and by my grandfather, who was very, very important to me. He's sort of the... the um, I sort of, sort of the base for the character of Talmage, um, and I think actually it's a good place to read a little bit. I'm going to read from the very beginning. It's it's an introduction to Talmage, and it's also um, this is what my grandfather looked like, feature for feature. His face was as pitted as the moon. He was tall, broad-shouldered, and thick, without being stocky though one could see how he would pass into stockiness. He had already taken on the barrel-chested sturdiness of an old man. His ears were elephantine, a feature most commented on when he was younger, when the ear stuck out from his head. But now they had darkened like the rest of his sun-exposed flesh and lay against his skull more than any other time in his life and were tough, the flesh granular like the rind of some fruit. He was clean-shaven, large-poured. His skin was oily. In some lights, his flesh was gray, others tallow, others red. His lips were the same color as his face, had given way to the overall visage, had begun to disappear. His nose was large, bulbous. His eyes were cornflower blue. His eyelashes, nothing to speak of now, but when he was young, they were thick black, and his cheeks bloomed, and his lips were as pure and sculpted as a cherub's. These things together made the women compulsively kiss him, lean down on their way to do other chores, collapse him to their breasts. All his mother's sisters he could no longer remember from Arkansas, who were but shadows of shadows now in his consciousness. Oh, my lovely, they would say. Oh, my sweet lamb. And then there's more physical description of, of Talmage after that. But this was actually the very beginning. That description of Talmadge's physical being was the last thing I wrote before I turned it in to my publisher. Um, the first thing I wrote was, is what came immediately afterward, which is Talmadge. Um, we see Talmadge in his wagon. He's heading to town with his fruit in the back. And he sets up his fruit stand. And he sees off in the distance these two girls. Um, he can't tell much about them other than the fact that they're girls and they're sort of dirty and watching him. He falls asleep. A little boy wakes him up and says, tell just, those girls just stole your apples. And so he chases the girls down. And when he gets close enough, he realizes when he touches one of them, she reacts and turns around. And he sees that they're both very pregnant. And so he lets them go. And that's sort of the initial encounter of Talmage and the two girls, Jane, Jane and Della. Um, I wanted to. What happened right before I turned in the book and said, "I'm done with it, publish it. I'm never going to touch it again." Um, what happened was at that, that beginning that I had written, you know, while I was in graduate school here in like 2003 or 2004, I couldn't see it anymore. I would read it to myself, and I had read it for so long that I had no relationship with it anymore. And I would say to people, is this okay, I can't even, I can't hear it, I can't see it. And that made me a little sad. And I was also having sort of anxiety letting the manuscript be handed off to my editor and there was this sort of like tug of war where she would say, it's good, let me, let me take it. And I'd say, no, 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 it's not, it's not good enough yet. And I'd take it back and she would, I could feel her roll her eyes all the way from, from between Portland and New York, you know. Um, and so around the time I was going to turn the book in, my, my partner said, um, sort of in an offhand way, you know, it's really funny, something that you don't do in your writing is that you don't really describe people's faces. You don't describe people's physical beings. It's just, you know, an observation. It's interesting. And I said, you know, I was very volatile around this time. <laughs> and I said, what do, do you think that I can't do something like that? <laughs> and he said, oh, God, no, I, I didn't. I didn't mean that. And, I, and then, of course, I started thinking about it. And I thought, there's this book called The End by this man named Salvatore Scabona. And if you haven't read that book, you should read it. It's just this beautiful book. It was up for a National Book Award a few years ago. And it's kind of a difficult, it's sort of a, it's like if Virginia Woolf was writing today, she would write the end. <laughs> I mean, that's, and for me, that's high praise since I think Virginia Woolf is is, is perfect. Um, but what Salvatore Scabona does in the beginning of that book is you open it up and there's this beautiful, um, really long-winded, but very well-constructed, physical description of the main character. And so I was laying in bed and I was thinking, okay, my partner doesn't think I can write do physical descriptions, and Salvatore has this, and I thought, I'm just gonna try it. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, you know, what does Talmud look like? And it was like this perfect way to let the book go, finally, for me. I sat down and I wrote this description. I thought about my grandfather, and who he's he died when I was 14 and this book in a way was a way to really let go of um actually of grieving him Um, and that's something that I can talk about now but when I was writing the book or before the book you know his death was still very um I hadn't I hadn't kind of accepted it and you know that happened a long time ago um And so we can talk about that, too, (laughs) maybe if anyone has questions about the relationship between um, a person's own stuff going on in their own life, in their art, um, and that relationship. Because the book has a lot to do with my own personal life, but it's also completely independent of me. Um, And I appreciate that, and I I value its own life out in the world. Um, But when I wrote that description, I thought, that's how I want to begin my book. And I wrote it, and I sent it off. And the editor says, oh, OK, I do <laughs> I do like that. Uh, we'll just add it to the beginning, and, and that was it. Um, and it's really nice because my family, when my family opened the book, they read that and immediately knew who they were reading about, my grandfather. But then, of course, he becomes Talmadge. You know, he becomes something else. But there's a sort of wink to my family in the very beginning there that I felt you know my family deserved, since my family has supported me and and have so much to do with this book. Um, what happened was, I feel like the book began when I was a child, and I'd sort of been harboring this book for a long time. But when I was at the, the University of Oregon, um, going to my creative writing classes and going to my lectures, I was obsessed with um, short fiction, with short stories, and. I was so fixated on short fiction that I don't think I ever thought I would write a novel, which is unusual for, for students who are you know, 19, 20, 21 years old because um, everyone wants to write a novel now, I feel like. And you should because that's where the money is, right? <laughs> not to, put, not to, to dish short fiction because I think it's a beautiful, beautiful art form. Um, and in, a, way, in ways, a lot of ways, you know, more difficult to write than, than a novel. Um, But I just, you know, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write short stories. Uh, When I went to the University of Minnesota, um, you know, the workshop uh, model is very amenable to to short fiction because you can present your short story. People can take it home, read it, and come back the next week and be ready to talk about it. You can talk about a um, a complete work. You can criticize a complete work. But oftentimes, you know, if anyone here is in a program right now or has been through a program, you know, maybe you can identify with this, but talking about novel chapters is just terrible sometimes because a person could bring in a chapter and throw it away in two years. Um, you, can, you can talk about and no, the potential of a novel chapter, but it's very different from criticizing a whole short story. Um, so, you know, that's kind of um, hard, I guess, being in workshop that way. But when I, during my first and second years of being a graduate student, I read William Faulkner's novel, Light in August. And I'd only written, uh, written I wish I'd written Faulkner's novels. <laughs> that was a slip, of writing. slip. Um, I'd only read um, like Spotted Horses and a few other of his short stories, which I absolutely treasure. But I had never read um, a novel of Faulkner's. And I read Light in August, and I thought, what, I, what have I been doing Thinking about short fiction. I mean, the novel is where it's at. It's just and the whole just everything sort of blew up for me. I just started thinking about this story idea I, I had about these two girls and this old orchardist. And I kept trying to write about them, and they just kept failing and failing, and not failing in the way that, that I usually failed at short fiction. It was this it was this failure that felt very agitated, like it was saying, I'm not a failed short story because I'm not a short story kind of thing. And I didn't understand, I didn't speak its language or something. And then I started thinking about these particular characters and particular images in the context of a longer work, and things started falling into place. In my mind, not so much on the page, but I had this sort of, um, this is another thing that's hard to describe um, because it's very mysterious and abstract, but you just get this you just get this feeling where you think, I can fail for a long time, but if I still have this feeling and this hope that one day I will express you know, what I'm thinking about, then it's all worth it. And so I sort of lived on that for, for the time it took to write the book. Um, so I talked to Charles Baxter. He told me to read a book called um, Voss by Patrick White not a lot of people, I had never heard of him before, and I thought, you know, I have such a big ego, I thought, well, if no, I've never heard of him before, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, you know, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in, I think, 1976, um, he's Australian, and this book, Voss, is just incredible, um, I went down to one of those bookstores in Town, not the one with all the animals, which I think is closed, but the other one, um, and I found a copy, and I read it, and I just, again, my head exploded. And I thought, I have been thinking about fiction and about writing about landscape. I've been, I've been restricting myself. And so I just sort of, um, I let myself um, create and write about landscape in a whole new way. Um, and if I can talk about... Um, what Patrick White does, uh, maybe if we have time at the end, or if you're interested, we could chat one-on-one, but he, the book is based on the actual diaries of this um, explorer named, I think his name is Ludwig Leichhardt, and he attempted to cross the Australian like interior desert in 1848, and um, he disappeared, basically. I'm not ruining anything, I mean, he actually disappeared <laughs> in real life. And the book is about sort of um, this man's obsession with crossing, um, with, with being so, sort of overwhelmed with a particular landscape, and Patrick White's writing style and his vision in that book was just what I needed to sort of help me along in my own, in my own novel journey. Um, Virginia Woolf, I mentioned her. She was very, very influential. Um, I took a class just on her work um, while I was at the University of Oregon, mm-hmm. and I was so moved by her work and by her vision as well. And I felt very, very close to her. Like, I felt like when I was reading her novel, Jacob's Room or To the Lighthouse, I felt like she'd written it last week or something. I felt like it was brand new. It was revolutionary today. You know, when she was writing, I think, To the Lighthouse came out in the 20s, maybe early 30s. Um, 1927, I think. And I sort of kept a kept sort of a, Kept her over here in the corner of my mind until I was writing my book and I thought, I have to go back and reread all of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> and so I did that. And you know, she really influenced the book in, especially the passage, the passages in the books that are very short. They're like, um, I'm talking about Talmadge and Angeline's experiences alongside Della's experience outside of the orchard. I, I studied the, the, pa- the section Time Passes into the Lighthouse, which is, if you've read that book, um, To the Lighthouse is sort of a portrait of a, a family over a period of years, and they have a summer house in, I think it's St. Ives in Britain. And there's a whole middle section of To the Lighthouse. It's called Time Passes, and it's literally about time passing. <laughs> That's all that happens. The summer house is empty the perspective is of like a wind or an air moving through an empty house you get a bunch of images of light and of like curtains flapping around it sounds insane but it's totally beautiful and um, you know there's news of the family like people dying people um, being born but they're in these little brackets and they're very short clips and what's sort of more important virginia wolf is saying is like or what we should pay attention to and not forget about is just the silence and the emptiness of this place that's also unpeopled. Um, and I'm not doing justice to to what she's trying to do there, but that really influenced um, when I was trying to think about time passing for my characters. You know, one of the novelist challenges is where do you focus in characters' lives, and where do you sort of summarize very quickly? Nine years later, she did this. <laughs> you know, when can you get away with that? You know, you want to, you can press your readers, but you never want to have them throw the book across the room. Or I don't know, maybe you do, but, um, but it has to be. You know, you want a reader to feel great things, but you never want to. There needs to be a justification for it. Um, yeah, I think I believe that. Um, Cormac McCarthy. I read a lot of him. I love him. You know, he has a very, he's known as, everyone says he's Faulkner's era, which is really appropriate, I think. But he was also, I'm going to answer this right, right now, because people always ask about my my non-use of, of quotation marks for dialogue. Um, you know, I think it was a matter of me wanting to emulate, reading a lot of Cormac McCarthy and writers like, Um, Kent Haruf, or Haruf, I'm not how you say his last name, but you know, they don't use quotation marks and I sort of absorbed this through my reading. And when I was writing, I just, that's how I wrote. Um, I'm very sensitive to, you know, whatever I'm reading, I'm going to sort of emulate in some way, for better or for worse. And um, at a certain point someone said, you know, if this ever gets published, people are going to ask you about the quotation marks, so I said, yeah, so I put them in, and it was just horrible. I felt like when people spoke, they were screaming at me (laughs) because I had written, I had not used them for so long that I had grown accustomed to how how that looked on the page. And also, I had changed, I had accommodated that choice by my other writing choices. My my writing style was sort of... um, supporting my non-use of quotation marks. So when I put them in, I had to rearrange other things and it just was a huge mess. So I said, you know, some people are gonna find this to be really um, upsetting. Um, but my hope was that I did it well enough that it wasn't too distracting and that people accepted it. Um, yeah, and that's, I think those are my big influences. Faulkner, Wolf, Cormac McCarthy, Toni Morrison definitely. Um, I read Beloved over and over and over when I was in graduate school, just for the, just for how that book, I mean, the book is beautiful, um, period, but how it's shaped and how it's structured and how Toni Morrison deals and handles time is just so beautiful, too. And so I learned a lot from that. And really, I mean, if if you haven't noticed this already, you know, my, sort of my apprenticeship with writing this book was I just read as much as I could um, of people who I felt I had a relationship with, um, like vision-wise or technically. There's something about a person's writing that I felt very drawn to. I would read, I would read as much as I could of what they wrote. Um, I would read you know, their letters or essays on what they wrote to understand sort of their position as a writer and how they, what they struggled with as well. Of course, that's very comforting if you hear what other people are struggling with as well. And then I would just take my cues from, from what I was reading, and I would emulate people, and then that would fall apart because it was too much of an emulation, and it wasn't enough of what I was saying. And you know, that's hard if, if you're just starting out, if you're writing a novel for the first time. You don't know what you're, you don't know anything. You don't know anything, <laughs> you know? All you know is that you have this feeling And you have this this desire that you want to write something beautiful, and you want to write about the characters that are haunting you, but you don't quite know how to do it. And you're always feeling, you know, even this. I love this book. I'm very proud of this, but I also, in a way, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's also a huge failure. Um, That sounds really awful. But I mean, what I mean by that is that, you know, this is nothing like what I first envisioned it as being. You know, you aim for something over here, and what you wind up with is something way over here, way over here. And that's just how it has to be, because that's just how it is. Um, But I think it was, the whole process was a matter of trying and trying and trying, emulating, failing, taking, like, you know, a paragraph over here that was successful and stitching it over to this other successful thing. And And then, you know... After eight years, you have sort of this behemoth <laughs> that sort of makes sense, you know, and you start chipping away at that, letting other people read it, and then you you find a home for it. So that was basically, um, basically how The Orchardist came to be.
0: And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Clubbook audience for questions and comments for Amanda Copeland and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman who is also from Washington's Yakima Valley. She remembers her father working the orchard fields much like how Copeland describes her grandfather in the novel.
1: We aren't actually related by blood. He was a bachelor until his sometime in his 40s. And so he was my grandmother's second husband. So he was living with his mother until he married my grandmother, basically. And my, my, my granny, his mother was, um, I was just talking to my grandmother about this the other day. My granny was a hermit, but I never knew that because when you're a kid, you think granny's just a little, or you don't even think she's weird. It's just how she is, you know? And I, my grandmother was saying, oh, you know, Eunice, you know, Never left the house because x, y, and Z, and I thought you know she never left the house that's right and um I think part of I mean part of what's in the book too is Talmage's sort of yearning for a family, and I think that came from I think my grandfather he had his mother and he had his brothers who were also orchardists, and he tended his land, his mother's land, but when he married my grandmother, he inherited this whole family, and so we all sort of you know came flooding into the orchard. And um, I have a younger brother, and I have younger cousins, and we sort of were this troop who would, um, our parents deposited us there all the time because they wanted to get away from us, I'm (laughs) sure. And um, we just, I'm sure we bothered him. He was, you know, he worked all the time in the orchards, except for when he was, he worked at the aluminum factory in South Wenatchee as well. and. he also had help that came in, you know, during during harvest and different things that needed to be done where he couldn't do by himself and his brothers couldn't do. You know, people would come in and help. Um, but, and I do remember him working. But I also am very struck by images of him just sort of in the in, not the dusk, but sort of the time right before dusk, just sort of walking very slowly, checking stuff out because there's always stuff. You know, he's looking at the leaves, he's looking at the gophers, which were. You know, you couldn't ever get rid of the gophers, <laughs> no matter how hard you tried. Um, you know, he had all kinds of, you know, fixing the sprinklers, making this sure the sprinklers were on. And um, and we would just sort of, you know, follow him around. And he had this old, like, it was like an old army jeep or something that was always falling apart. That he would, um, <laughs> he would, we would all pile in and he would let one of us drive past my grandmother's kitchen window. So, she, so just to make her mad, you know, like my five-year-old brother would be like, hey, grandma, <laughs> driving past. And um, my grandfather got the biggest kick out of that. And my grandmother would get really upset. But um, so we would just, he really, he really you know, embraced having children, I think, in the orchard too.
0: This audience member brings into question a chapter at the end of the book that she found rather mysterious and asks if Copeland can help explain it. But don't worry, no spoilers here.
1: What do you think it means? (laughs) Well, it's so funny because people often ask questions like that. Like, in this scene, did you mean this? And I think, well, that's interesting. Like, I hadn't thought. I mean, I'm not about, like, I'm not about tying up loose ends. I mean, obviously, if you've read the book, (laughs) that's pretty obvious. Um, But, you know, I'm, 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 very interested in the relationship between like images in the book. Um, and that's a very abstract thing to say, but I feel like if there's this relationship between um, like particular images where characters want something at one part of the book and like a shadow of what they want appears later, like there's a definitely a relationship between those two things. Even if the character isn't even aware of it, you know, maybe Talmage is suffering from something from his childhood, and I mean, the whole book is about that is about in a way, on one level as Talmage, does he get what he wants at the end? Um, you know, and people can argue about that, but i but my job I felt like was to present images and you can stress certain relationships like some writers are very very interested in tying up loose ends and will stress like, you know. One plus one in the beginning is two, and you know, and you can make this sort of bridge. And I'm not really, I'm more about creating a relationship between things, but not necessarily answering very clearly.
0: Our next Club Book audience member comments that she felt it was the orchard that was the main character in Copeland's book.
1: When I wrote um, a version of this, a very, very, I mean, it, a version that's, so different from this, it's like not recognizable in many ways. I presented that from my MFA thesis for school here. And um, I was meeting with Charles Baxter, who is my thesis advisor, and we sat down and he said, well, you know, um, nothing happens in this book. And I said, yeah, <laughs> and? And he said, well, it's, there's just a lot of stuff about landscape. And I said, Like, is this a criticism, or is this something I need to change? And he was like, if you want people to read your book, you have to have both. You have to have a driving force that is oftentimes related to plot, Um, and you have to have all the stuff to hang on, which is all the stuff that he said, all the stuff that I was particularly gifted at and that I loved would be more successful if it could hang on something more conventional and more, that had more of a foundation, like a plot. And so plot was something that I really, um, and still do, have a really difficult time thinking about. Um, But when people say, you know, well this is really about an orchard, or um, the the orchard is the main character, that rings very true for me, because I felt like that, you know, this couldn't have taken place really in another environment. It would have been a different story, I mean, so much of the book comes from, or I hope it comes from, um, from the place and the people's relationships, the people's interior relationships with the the outside world. And, you know, plus, what a great place to set a book in terms of the relationship of images and, like, in our culture, I mean, it, it goes way, way, way back, you know, with trees, orchards, apples, families, abuse, you know, sex, all this stuff. Um, So that was an interesting arena to work into.
0: The Orchardist is strewn with some characteristically short chapters. This question is what is the reasoning behind this unique writing style?
1: I guess how I would answer that is that there were certain scenes that from the very beginning, I knew I wanted to write. And I saw the very beginning, like the scene where Talmadge meets the girls for the first time. I saw that very clearly, I saw the girls coming into the, into the homestead and like skulking around and not wanting to have anything to do with Talmadge, really. I saw those interactions very clearly. I saw um, the scene where Della and Angeline go into Talmage's cabin when he's not there, and they look around, and there's a catalog of what is in Talmage's space. Like those things were very fun and satisfying to write. Um, and then I saw what happened. Um, you know, at different parts of the girl's life and Talmadge's life, and then I saw what happened sort of near what I wrote near the end of the book, and then there was this sort of wasteland <laughs> in the middle, and I suffered so much because um, for for seven months I was living in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I was um, at this like a, I had a residency at the Fine Arts Work Center, and it's it's in the winter time, so. You know, Provincetown is usually this huge party in the summer, but everyone goes home and then they invite these writers and artists to live there um, for seven months. And that's what I was doing when I was there. I was thinking about how do I write the middle of my book? And I, I looked at Virginia Woolf again, and I looked at different writers and how they managed to write about great spans of time. Like some novels take place over a week, like what I call the present situation, like what's unfolding in the present time of the characters' lives, it can be a week long. I was talking about, you know, we see Talmadge as like a nine-year-old, and then, you know, the book ends when, you know, when Angeline is a certain age. So you're talking about a lifetime. You know, And as a writer, that's, you have to make so many choices. And I wanted to write about this, the middle section being um, this period of, I wanted that feeling of time passing but I also wanted to sort of hone in and talk about like, you know, Angeline finding old pictures of Talmadge and spilling, she spills tea or something, you know, and she gets in trouble and she's hurt because Talmage is mad at her. You know, those like sort of domestic things that you experience growing up. Like I wanted the reader to see that very specifically, but I also wanted to say, you know, show that and then two years later, you know, she was eating pancakes or something. Like, you know, sort of, and be unapologetic about that. Um, And I wanted, you know, I wanted that sort of, that particular texture that's created when you see those specific moments in Angeline's life, in life, and also Della, who's living a very different existence. And and there's also this um, feeling of, like, resistance. I know when I was reading it, some you know, When I was writing it, I was thinking, oh, people are not going to like this. People are going to be so upset (laughs) because it's it's a break from the usual. The book is presented to the reader a certain way, and then I say, that's finished. (laughs) And then I do, this is a new section. And people have this resistance, but I'm really interested in that, in upsetting the reader like that. Not in a bad way, but making the reader sort of sit up and say, well, where am I now? Like, this isn't fair, you know? And that sense of discomfort is tied in with also the discomfort of the characters, which I was really interested in. Um, And then the book changes even more stylistically towards the end. Um, And was that a right choice? I think so now. In 20 years, I might change my mind or something. But um, you have to kind of go with... It felt intuitively right, so I stuck with it.
0: Our final question of the night is always one of the more popular ones. What is Amanda Copeland working on next?
1: I'm working on something. It's amorphous. It has not shown me its name. It's, it's something. I have pages, which is what I'm satisfied with now. Um, but nothing, nothing substantial yet. Thank you very much.
0: Well, that's it from our Stillwater Public Library event with Amanda Copeland. And that's it for our 2014 winter-spring season. But we will be back. I promise. Our 2014 Summer-Fall season will kick off the week of August 11th with two New York Times bestsellers coming to the Twin Cities. The full season lineup will be announced in June. While we are gone, check out our other podcasts from the season. There are some fun ones. Our most popular one to date is Elizabeth Berg's visit to Dakota County's Galaxy Library. We also recommend our podcast of authors Peter Guy and Amy Green and Conversation at Ramsey County's Roseville Library. And my personal favorite is Dave Zirin's Clubbook event at Hennepin County's Southdale Library. You don't have to be a sports fan to enjoy this fascinating sports writer. I'm certainly not. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and future seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter to find out the lineup before anyone else. Check out our calendar and so much more. We also have photos of the previous discussions from this season on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, Find us using the handle Clubbook MN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who made Clubbook possible this season, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to Stillwater Public Library for hosting Amanda Copeland and to all other libraries that hosted events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.